Amen. So this morning we're continuing in the book of Romans and we're beginning chapter 8. But a very important rule of reading the Bible is don't forget what you just read because chapter 8 is related to chapter 7. So as you turn to page 944 in your pew Bible or Romans chapter 8 in the Bible you brought with you, I want to just remind us of where we've been. The last couple weeks, Pastor Pete has been taking us through Romans 7, which has described for us the, what, what Pete called the saint's, saint's struggle. Um, this internal sense we have of knowing the good that we are supposed to do, knowing the standard to which we are to measure up, but also recognizing our inability to do it. This internal struggle between knowing what we ought to do and not doing it. Now, if you're like me and you read chapter 7, you read things like, I know the good that I am supposed to do, but I find that I do the very thing I hate. I know what I want to do, but I do not do it. Uh, you, are, uh, you probably can relate to this message. I think the reason that uh, the end of chapter 7 is so very um, easy for us to understand and relate to is because it speaks to a universal human condition of being created in the image of God and so having a sense of, of God's majesty and glory and perfection within us by virtue of our creation, but also all of us being fallen. And so being unable to, to attain that standard that is um, inscribed within us as being created in the image of God. And so um, as we move to chapter 7, we want to, or we move to chapter 8, what happens is the saints struggle, the internal sense of this uh, uh, struggle to do the good that we ought to do, shifts. And now Paul begins to talk in chapter 8 about the saint's status, the objective status that we have before God. And so um, as we read, I, I would invite you to, to pray with me that the Holy Spirit would um, open us as we hear, open our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear what he would have for us today. So please join me in prayer. Loving God, we thank you for your word and this great gift that it is of proclaiming to us good news. And we pray that you would enable us to hear the good news from your word this morning and that it would take root within us, that, it would, that you would bring it to life by your Holy Spirit, and that this good news would be brought to life in us, in our lives this week. We pray that you would be faithful to your word. Be faithful to your people and enable us to be faithful to you through the hearing and reading of your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we saw last week and the week before that, Paul is talking about the Old Testament law, the moral commandments, the Ten Commandments, the instructions that come throughout the Old Testament. And as 
we just mentioned at the end of chapter 7, he is speaking to the internal experience of knowing what the good is and being unable to fulfill it. This is true of our spiritual condition, but I think we see it working itself out in many other ways in our lives because we are driven by a lot of um, internal, uh, the internal sense that we should be doing different things than we are. So we know that we should not be so impatient or that we should be more kind and compassionate or we should, we feel that we should accomplish more or do a better job or be a better person. But many of us know this sense of frustration of knowing what we should do and yet feeling unable to accomplish it. As I mentioned, I think this is part of what it is to be created in the image of God and yet fallen from that image. It's the internal uh, struggle of the saints and of really all people inside and outside the church. And as I tried to describe to the children, I think there are two ways that we manage this sense. Whether we're Christians or not, we manage this sense in largely one of two ways. And one of the, the first way I would call the irreligious strategy And that is to lower the standard, to minimize what God has asked us to do or what we feel that we should do. And so we tell ourselves, well, you know, God doesn't really expect us uh, to really follow the things that he put forth in his word. Some of us try to erase the evidence of our own inadequacy by working really hard. And this is a more religious strategy to solve this problem of knowing that we don't measure up. So... This is, as I say, the more religious answer. But uh, So we work hard, we stretch, we strain, we stand on our toes, we try to cover the gap ourselves by our own efforts. Whether we lower the standard or try to raise ourselves up to the standard, both of these strategies are really simply trying to avoid or manage this inescapable sense that we don't measure up to who we're supposed to be and who God calls us to be. Now, the Bible teaches, and particularly in Romans 6, that this internal subjective sense is actually connected to an objective reality that uh, we, we have fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us have sinned, and that, as Paul writes in Romans 6, there is a problem with that. There is a penalty for that failing to live up to God's standards, and as he puts it, the wages of sin is death. So this awareness is, I think, internal to all of us at some level. And we have these two very common strategies for how to manage it. But Paul's strategy this morning, the way he begins chapter 8, is really very different and totally unexpected. And if you remember chapter 7, or if you let your eye kind of scan the end of chapter 7, you'll see how surprising it is. Because he's just talking about how difficult it is to live up to the law that is holy and just and good. And he, he, so he's talking about this internal struggle. And so contrary to the irreligious response, he says, there is an unchangeable standard, right? God expects you to be, to, to be six feet tall, as we said in the children's sermon. And that that law is holy and righteous and good, he says in chapter 7, verse 12. So he doesn't try to lower the standard for himself. And contrary to the religious response, he is saying, I know the good that I'm supposed to do, but I just can't do it. You, you don't measure up. I don't measure up. And we can't. Which, if you just sit there with that for a second, you realize that we have a very serious problem. The wages of sin is death. Falling short of God's standard is a serious problem, and we cannot solve it. There is nothing we can do 
to fix this problem. And so you can understand why we have this internal sense of struggle and frustration. We feel condemned to this life of uncertainty. But Paul begins chapter 8 by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which is a very unexpected thing to say. How can it be that the reality we have is that we do not measure up to what God has called us to be, and yet there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul goes on to unpack this astonishing statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in the following verses. He says in verse 3 that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So what is it that the law can't do? Well, Pete's been talking about the last couple weeks that the Old Testament law is very good at certain things. Rules are good at certain things. Rules can expose where we fall short. The law exposes our sin. It shows us what sin is. It is, as Pastor Pete said, a kind of diagnostic tool, like a PET scan, that shows you where things are wrong. It is a diagnostic tool, but it is not a therapeutic tool. So the rules in the Old Testament, the law of the Old Testament, as good as it is, it can tell you what ails you, but it can't fix what ails you. The law cannot provide for its own fulfillment. At best, rules and laws and commandments and instruction can change our behavior, but they cannot change our hearts. And so here's an example that probably many of you will relate to if you've ever been around more than one child at a time. Sometimes what happens when children are together is that one of them will say, uh, maybe a three-year-old blonde boy. I won't say his name. But he might become upset and whack his, say, older brother, perhaps. This might happen. And what has happened there is that there's a, a good rule that has been violated. Like, you don't hit people. And so uh, that's a good rule. There's nothing wrong with that rule. And so mommy or daddy come along, and very patiently and calmly and lovingly, of course, instruct the three-year-old to, to say, I'm sorry, which is another good rule. When you hurt somebody, you're supposed to say you're sorry. These are good rules. There's nothing wrong with them. But what you usually get when uh, this happens is that you say, uh, you're not supposed to hit your brother, so say you're sorry. And often what you get is, what, the most unapologetic apology you could ever imagine. I'm sorry, or I'm sorry, or I'm sorry. And then, so of course, then daddy will say, no, say you're sorry. (laughs) Be sorry. Right? Parents can make children say they're sorry, but as we all know, we can't make anyone feel sorry. We can enforce rules and manage behavior, but we cannot manage deeper problems, which is the selfishness of the human heart. And so even if we have the best law there is, it can't change our hearts. And so Paul says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Paul's good news is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not because God has lowered the standard, and not because we are now somehow actually able to accomplish it on our own. Rather, God has lowered himself to our, st- to our terrible condition and lifts us up and makes up the gap for us. He sent his son to be one of us, and so on the cross condemned sin in him 
so that he did not have to condemn it in us. Jesus was condemned as a human being so that we human beings could be free from condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because sin has already been condemned in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because everything that is terrible in you has already been condemned as Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. It was condemned on the cross when Jesus died. And so it's all gone. The condemnation that we deserve has been taken care of by Jesus Christ. He has done what the law could not do. The law, as Pete said, cannot exonerate us. But God has done what the law cannot do. Now the fact that Paul says there is now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus has huge implications for both our past and our future. It means for our past that there is no guilt from our past that needs to hold us captive anymore. Why? Because there is no condemnation for it. Not because it doesn't matter. Not because it is not condemnable. Because what Jesus accomplished on the cross matters more. Jesus did for us the very thing we could never do for ourselves. He suffered the consequences that were due to us because of our unrighteousness. That is death, condemnation. And he gives to us the reward that was due to him for his perfect righteousness, which is life, real life, now and forever. So Jesus takes our ugliness and our weakness and he gives us his beauty and his strength. Here's what it means to be not condemned. We read it in the Heidelberg Catechism in your bulletin, in the Statement of Faith. To be not condemned is to say of ourselves, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned or been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. That is what it means to be not condemned, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the small, anxious, selfish person that you are, the kind of person who yells at their kids when they don't say sorry, or talks behind other people's backs, or has impure thoughts, or has neglected their family, or is embezzling money at work, whatever it is, whatever is in our past, when Christ died for us, all of that, everything evil in us was given to him, so that everything good in him could be given to us. And so when God looks at us, and we are in Christ, he sees his perfectly obedient child, his perfectly obedient son, who is living in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what it means, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus is to be set free from the ugliness of our past, but that's not all it is. It's not only to be forgiven for the bad things that we've done. It's not only to be set in a right relationship with God, and then now we start over again with the same struggle of trying to reach up to attain the standard. No, we are also set free for a glorious future. You look at verse 3 and 4 again. Paul says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He sent his own son in our likeness, in sinful flesh, condemning sin in his flesh, in order that, this is verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
So the second aspect of God's saving grace, its blessing, is not just that we are forgiven. It's that we are changed. Not only, not, not, it's not that all of a sudden God says, well, you don't have to live up to the standard. You don't have to live the life that I have created you to live. I forgive you because you're such a failure. No, he sends his spirit to live within us and transform us and enable us day by day, slowly, step by step, to begin to live the life that he created us to live. We're not just forgiven, we're changed. And this is exactly what the law cannot do, right? He can change our hearts so that we long for what God longs for. We love what God loves. We want what God wants in our own lives. And so we're set free not only from our past, but we're set free in our future to live in an entirely different way. So for example, when we are grasped by the fact, the truth, the astonishing truth that seems too good to be true, that there is no condemnation possible for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are free in our lives from this paralyzing fear of being criticized by other people, right? If there's no condemnation for us from God, then all of a sudden we are secure in every aspect of our lives. We don't have to be driven by this. Uh, our identities no longer have to be wrapped up in approval from other people because we have approval. There is no condemnation for us. We are totally free to admit when we've blown it because we know there is therefore now no condemnation for us if we are in Christ Jesus. I think one sort of obvious one that, that is so obvious we sometimes neglect to say it is that when we really grasp that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we aren't afraid of the future. We aren't afraid of dying. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for us. Our future is secure in Christ Jesus. We are truly free because we are truly secure in him. And that can transform our whole lives. Imagine, um, we've all heard this before. Maybe someone has asked you the question, what would you do if you won the lottery? If you won the lottery, what would you do? Most people, uh, if they were freed from the concern of financial ruin, would live an entirely different way, right? We would... Some of us would quit our job. I would never quit my job. <laughs> some of us might quit our jobs. Um, some of us would uh, live differently. We'd live in a different house. We'd travel more. Our lives would look entirely different if we were set free from the concern of being ruined financially. Well, Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, there is no danger anymore of spiritual ruin. In the most important aspects of our lives... We are totally secure. There is no condemnation for us. And so how would you live differently if you knew, because you are in Christ, that there is no condemnation for you now and into eternity? You are totally secure. That forgiveness of your past will extend to your future. Jesus has you. His spirit will not let you go. You are completely secure and safe. How would you live differently? Most of us live our lives working very hard to secure for ourselves what only God can ultimately provide. We are doing what Paul calls walking according to the flesh. Walking according as though the flesh, the world, was all that there was. But what Paul is saying is that God has done what, what the law cannot do. God has done what we cannot do. He has accomplished for us the forgiveness that we could not secure for ourselves. He has come down and lifted us up 
so that we now can begin to live according to God's plans for us. We can now walk according to the Spirit and find, amazingly, that all of those, that sense that we should be living differently, we should be feeling differently, we should be loving differently, we should be serving differently, we find our hearts changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and we begin to walk differently. He sends his own spirit to enable us to live in ways that fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And so there's two astonishing promises, three astonishing promises in this passage. One is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are totally free in our past because of the work of Jesus Christ. We, he has done for us everything that we cannot do for ourselves. And the next promise is that the Spirit will do in us all that we cannot do in ourselves. Just as God has accomplished forgiveness for us, God will accomplish transformation in us, all by his grace and all by his working. And so just as we are totally free from our past, the sin in our past is finished, there is no condemnation for us, so the new life that the Spirit creates in us is just beginning as the Holy Spirit begins to apply the work of Christ in our lives and in our hearts. And so thanks be to God that Christ has accomplished for us everything we could not accomplish to set us free from condemnation, and the Spirit sets us free to live in an entirely new and different way from here forward. We are transformed because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for this great promise. We simply pray that you would help us to understand what it means that you would that this seed of these few verses would put down roots in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives as we grasp together with all the saints the breadth and depth and height and length of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. May it set us free from our past and may it set us free for a new and glorious future following you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.